This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled Awareness, Suffering, and Compassion, recorded June 11th, 2017, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I'd like you to become involved right now. I'd like you to consider who or what you are. I want you to close your eyes and see if you can get a sense of this. It seems that once upon a time, long, long ago, the story of you begins. And though it seems long ago, it's not. It's just now. This is the beginning, right now. This is the beginning of the story of I. What seems to be your past is a series of thoughts arising now. Take a moment and see if you can find anything in your direct experience here and now that can tell you otherwise. We think, well, I've got photo albums when I was a little kid, and those are real, and I remember them. But notice, those are all thoughts arising now. And what is this photo album when you open it? What are you looking at? You are looking at images. You are looking at light and dark, color. But you, in this moment, through thought, you are seeing someone we call me. It is a process of imagination. There is only right now. Of course, the mind tells us you have a past, or we have a past. And it's really good that it does. We want that mind to know that we have a past on a superficial, conventional level. Because if we didn't know that, well, we'd be in the Alzheimer's unit. <laughs> it's very important that we have this process of thinking going on. It is a divine manifestation. Our problem with thoughts is that we believe they are real in themselves. And we lose sight of what is true. We lose sight of the fact that there is only now. When we mistake thoughts to be real in themselves, we suffer in delusion. But of course, you know, they're also tremendously creative if we don't do that. And even if we do that, they're tremendously creative. But we suffer, nonetheless. Uh, suffering is a form of that creativity. Thoughts are the power of imagination to make distinctions. 
And through these distinctions, all manifestation. But we think, oh, that's not right. I go out here, there's trees out there, there's cars, there's people, there's roads, there's China, and Japan, and all these places out there. These are all thoughts arising now. This room and all of us here today could not exist without thought. In the absence of thought, none of this exists. That's a paradox for us. Our mind, our mind will have none of it. <laughs> but that's okay, because that's, that's the work of the mind, and that's its function. But we don't have to be stuck in the mind. We do not have to identify with the mind, and truly the spiritual path is a path to ceasing to have that identification. So what is a thought right now? I mean, just look in your own experience. What is this thing we call thought? Now notice, if you're thinking about thought, that's not going to help you. That's just more thought. So look in your own experience and feel what it is. Feel into it. Taste it. What is thought? One thing that we notice is it is extremely fleeting and transient. And we can notice that thought tends to give rise to another thought and another thought, and another thought, and it goes on and on. And if you watch, and this is really the, the practice, we learn to be mindful through this practice of meditation. If you watch, you will see from the moment you wake up in the morning, these thoughts are going. One after another, after another, after another, and it goes on all day long. And if you have a moment where you kind of space out, suddenly it's like, oh, I'm spacing out. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> it's nice to space out, but it's certainly not accepted in the culture. So this process of moving from thought to thought in the East is called monkey mind. It's the mind that never lets go from one thought to another. It has to have something to cling to. And then before it grabs another thought, it has to, then it can let go. But otherwise, it's got to, it doesn't want that gap. That gap is worrisome. <laughs> now notice, as I appear to speak, you hear sounds and it's as though I am giving you thoughts. But notice, these sounds are just sounds. If I were speaking a language that you couldn't speak, you would not know what I was saying. It would just be a bunch of gobbledygook. The knowing of what I am saying is something that you are doing. These are your thoughts arising that are telling you what I am saying. 
It's very confusing to the mind when we look at this. The only reason this is possible is because we have a consensual agreement in language. We know what this sentence says because our thoughts and attention have been trained to go here and to see it this way. To see it as it's being spoken. But you can't really say that what you are hearing and what I am thinking are the same. Often we see that that is clearly not the case in our day-to-day life. But it goes deeper. What you experience as me is a series of thoughts arising within you. What you see here is visual phenomena and sound phenomena. It is your thoughts that define them. Your thoughts. Or let's put it this way. It is thought that defines them. Without thoughts, you would not experience yourself or me. And then look at this. Even these visual and sound phenomena, which appear to be arising over here, arise within you, within your awareness. They're not arising outside of your awareness, obviously, right? How could you be aware of them if they were outside of your awareness? You couldn't. So they are manifesting within your awareness. So close your eyes for just a moment and ask yourself, where does this sound come from? The mind tells us, well, it comes up here. It's it's coming from up here. It's coming from that gong right there that Todd rang. That is not our immediate and direct experience. Look for yourself. This sound is arising within you, within your awareness. It's not up here. That sense of over there is the play of mind. It is all arising within you. So, let's turn back a moment here and ask the question, what is this which you call you without thought? Take a look. Notice whenever thoughts come up to tell you something, just rest in what it is that you are prior to thought.
Can you discover what you are without thinking? Yes. Can you? Anybody? Can you recognize there is just this naked awareness? The sense of being, having an inside as opposed to an outside. It's a thought. It's a perception. But that is not your experience when you rest in the nakedness of this moment. Is there a past? No. Everything is arising right now. So if I ask you, are you aware right now? Could you deny that? Could you deny that you are aware in any way? Anybody? Clearly you're aware. It doesn't require thought to be aware. Awareness is already aware. It is the stillness, the space. What is it that knows the stillness? It is the awareness of the stillness. The stillness arises as the awareness of it. Awareness is aware of itself right now, in stillness. Formless awareness. What you know about this is not something that can be put into thought. It can't be talked about, really. I mean, I'm pointing to something, but I can't talk about it. Not really. It is immediate and direct. It is only now. This is pure knowing. The pure knowingness of awareness. Aware of itself. Being aware. That's all it is. But then there are all these phenomena that arise. They all arise as the pure awareness of them. They are not other than the knowing itself. We think, no, there are things here. There are no things. When we see it this way, we begin to recognize what's actually going on. But, you see, the problem is the mind won't have any of it. <coughs> the mind doesn't want to see this. And it has reason. And we'll get to those. This is the power of imagination. This power of imagination. This power to make extinct, ex- distinctions. 
the power to give rise to what we call the world in infinite form. It is the power of designating and naming. The power of thought. Thought makes distinction. The sense of self is an imaginary set of distinctions being created by thought in this moment. What is aware? It's just this naked awareness that is aware. All of these names, all of these stories, all arising just now. The great sage Shankara tells us the universe is nothing but a name. And the Sufi Sheikh Abin Arabi says every name by which something is named and which expresses a meaning is God's name. Everything is the name of God. Every name. All imaginings are metaphors for God or awareness. And we could call it anything, really. But traditionally, we have names. God, Brahman, Shiva, Allah, the Self, with a capital S, in the Hindu tradition. Ein Sof, in the Jewish tradition. The One Consciousness, in the Hindu tradition. And Primordial Awareness, Buddhist Presence of Awareness, Advaita Vedanta and some others. That's just to name a few. They go on and on and on. And all of these names are just names. For what? We can't say. It is unspeakable what this is. And yet we know it as soon as we stop. In all the traditions, one of the ways to describe reality is love. Or similar terms such as compassion, or bliss, or selflessness. Bliss is an interesting one. It's the love of self, in a certain sense. When consciousness loves itself, there is nothing else to love. It's just the one consciousness. And as we've mentioned before, the entire world of forms arise as the expression of this unspeakable awareness. Whatever arises, no matter how it appears, is always awareness aware of itself. There is only awareness. Awareness can't know anything else. So maybe there is something else. But awareness has no idea. Awareness cannot see it. Can, awareness cannot know it. And so, in our experience, it doesn't exist. Any phenomena that arises is this awareness. It is aware of itself, and as itself, it loves itself. 
I mean, in a, in a, in a simple way. Love is this movement of selflessness. And awareness is totally selfless. And we might say that imagination is birthed out of love. Out of the love of phenomena, of forms arising. Consciousness loves all of its forms, no matter how they are. Whether it be something, some beautiful saint, or some pile of dung. Even delusion manifests out of this divine love. It is a totally intimate process for consciousness, because consciousness, in this kind of loving, consciousness is whatever is arising. It is so intimate that it is one with everything that arises. And so, love is an apt term for this. But what is interesting about this, and as we've been talking, you may have noticed there is a little problem that we have, and that is, what are things in the world? How can things exist if they are just awareness? I mean, what is going on here? Well, the mystics will tell you, and the practice will show you, if you are inclined to go that deep into it. Everything that is arising right now is coming into being right now. As solid as things appear, it is all coming into being in this moment. Being cognized right now. Right now the entire universe of whatever you're experiencing is coming into being. Now that sounds really far-fetched and maybe even a little crazy. I mean, who would say such a thing? There's mental hospitals full of people who say stuff like that. So awareness then, when we look at this, awareness is your true identity. But it doesn't ever leave. You can notice the sense of self. It's constantly new. When you get up in the morning and you're sitting there putting on your shoes, there is a way that you are. That is a self. That is what we call self. It's a self-referential self. There's a little dialogue going on. Thoughts are arising, telling us who we are, what we're going to do, this whole thing. And we believe... It is me. But then when we get over to the kitchen and we start having breakfast and the phone rings, that's a different me. And when you watch closely, you can see these are mind states arising all by themselves out of consciousness. They are consciousness. But we immediately go, yep, that's me. Oh, I'm on the phone. These are my thoughts. These are things that really need to be examined. Yes, looked at. And that's really what the path is about, is bringing attention into our everyday experience to see things as they are. 
rather than how the mind is telling us they are. Love is closely associated with bliss. In the Hindu Upanishad, ultimate reality or consciousness is called Brahman. And they say, Brahman is bliss. And from bliss, all beings have come. And by bliss, they all live. And unto bliss, they all return. In fact, the nature of reality in Hinduism is often described as sat, chit, ananda. Being, consciousness, and bliss. Consciousness is what we've been talking about, this awareness, this, this naked awareness that is here prior to all imagination. And being is that awareness aware of itself. It knows that it is. I am that I am. And bliss, it is the nature of consciousness itself. It is intrinsic, innate, the substance of consciousness. But it's not a manifest bliss, it is intrinsic bliss. If we can talk about it as a substance, which we can't, the substance of consciousness is blissful within itself. It's not an emotion. It's a quality. A quality. And, and even to say it's a quality is too much because consciousness is really quality-less. But, you know, we're groping for words here. There are no words to describe what I'm talking about, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> so all of your experiences arise directly out of innate bliss. Whenever we experience dreamless sleep at night, I don't know if anyone's had that opportunity, but if you do... You will notice if, if you're not freaked out by the by the absence of everything, it's just total emptiness, totally nothing. <coughs> but if you recognize in the midst of dreamless sleep, you wake up or you become lucid, that is pure bliss. It is a total non-wanting of anything. It loves exactly how it is. It wants nothing. It is complete in itself. And that bliss acts as a kind of fuel for the process of creativity. This joy, it's kind of an exuberance within itself, within formless consciousness. And you can see this sometimes if you're on retreat and you're just, you're resting in some deep state of samadhi. And then the mind starts to dream, and all these dreams just bubble up. They have no purpose at all. Joel talks about how he's, you know, in the bathtub, and suddenly he's, uh, what was it, uh, Obama's uh, inauguration address popped in his head, and he started it just creating it for him, you know, for Obama. 
But it just, it's just a spontaneous imagination. It loves to express itself, and it loves its expression. It's a creative love. It loves to create. And it loves its creation. So amongst the mystics of Christianity now, Dionysius the Aeropagite says, Divine love is ecstatic, not allowing any to love themselves, meaning the forms, the creatures, but making them lovers of others. And God is drawn from his height above, exempt from all things, to dwell within all things, through his superessential and ecstatic power, in which he yet abides within himself. In other words, this is what we were talking about. This awareness, this God, is manifesting you now. You are coming into being now. It's a selfless giving on the part of God. God loves to do it selflessly. doesn't really need anything in return. The Sufis, the mystics of Islam, refer to a saying of the prophet Muhammad who asked God, why did you create all of this? And Allah's response was, I was a hidden treasure that longed for love to be known. To be known. And that's what this is. Everything that's arising is known. The awareness itself is knowing it. And the Sufi Ibn Arabi tells, the whole cosmos comes into being out of God's love in this moment coming into being in this moment. In Taoism, totally non-theistic and never mentions love at all, Lao Tzu refers to selfless giving. That's the, that's the whole thing. And selflessness is the nature of love itself. So listen to, listen to his words. He says, The myriad creatures rise from the Tao, yet it claims no authority. Totally humble. It gives them life, yet claims no possession. It benefits them, yet exacts no gratitude. It accomplishes its tasks, yet lays claim to no merit. And then he says, Therefore the sage benefits them, yet extracts no gratitude. Accomplishes tasks, yet lays claim to no merit. This is total selfless generosity. And in Buddhism, there are many practices associated with cultivating compassion. We all know the practices of, of loving kindness, uh, practices of, of tonglen. These are practices of compassion. And we cultivate compassion not to somehow make it bigger, but to open our hearts, which have been closed by our worldly contacts and our, our resisting and grasping through the story of I, 
opening our hearts to that innate love that is already present. And in Buddhism, we hear the words of the Buddha. He says, For those of you who want to attain enlightenment, do not study many teachings, only study one. What is it? It is great compassion. Whoever has great compassion has all Buddha's qualities in his hand. So however we can see the ultimate, it manifests as this complete intimacy with its creation. And this intimacy can be found in all states, in all forms. It loves them all. Whatever we see, it is awareness loving itself in that form, whether we recognize it or not. Forms are the blissful awareness in which forms arise. They are that awareness. And so, simply to be aware is to love. It is an act of creativity in that moment. And it's not that we do it. We can't love. We are an imagination. The story of I is an imagination. It is being created by thoughts moment by moment. But those thoughts themselves are the creative love of the ultimate. It is the divine loving itself in those forms. Just the act of seeing or feeling, tasting or hearing, it arises this creative love in this moment. And that's the only time that awareness of God operates because there is no other moment. the nature of dream is helpful to recognize this business of everything coming into being just now. Everything is being cognized just now. I mean, if you think about it, you don't even need to look at dreams. Everything that is arising has to be cognized now. Even if you believe in the biological, medical perspective. Whatever is arising is arising now. The problem with the biological medical perspective, however, is that it is deeply steeped in duality, in separation, the sense of me versus the world. But let's just look at a dream, because it's actually a nice, clean way of recognizing that everything is arising just now. Let's say we're walking down a dusty old dirt road. Okay, picture that. And off to our left is a beautiful pond, bullfrogs jumping in, croaking. 
We look off in the distance, we see mountains. The sky, the sun is setting over here. Now notice, if we're dreaming this, and we become lucid in this dream, we can see that everything that we're experiencing in this dream is coming into being now. There is no pond anywhere, right? It's an awareness. It's, a, it's, it's just an awareness. The dusty road. It's coming into being in the moment of seeing it. When you take a step and you feel your foot hit the ground, it is in the moment of feeling that sensation. That is the creation coming into being. Coming into being right now. There's nothing here aside from the awareness of whatever it is that's arising. So how then, if this is true, the question arises, how this is happening, and why don't we recognize the truth of what we are right now? That's an impossible question to answer, of course, like everything that I've been talking about. <laughs> there really is no way to say any of this, truly. I mean, I'm pointing to things, and the value of what I'm saying lies not in what I'm saying, but in your taking it to heart and looking to see if it is true in your own experience. And not just once, but over and over and over. And really looking to see and not letting the mind corral you and run you down its little pathway, which is you know, what the mind does if you let it. But that's the purpose of practices. So the characters arise and it's, they become so fascinated with themselves. They, there is a recognition of, there is this, this, this it's, not, it's not a conceptual recognition, it's just a simple knowing that there is just the awareness. And suddenly, because of all of the exuberance of the experience of pretending to be a separate self, suddenly we lose sight. And in the moment that we lose sight, we see something which seems apart from us. That momentary experience of duality triggers reaction of fear. And in that moment, there is a kind of balling up of attention into a movement to try to get back where we just came from, which was bliss. But we can't get back. We can't get back because now we are living in duality. And every movement that we make is a movement in duality. So right there, we start struggling. We look around and we have to name things. We have to know what everything is because we are so uneasy. We are so terrified in the moment. And in that moment, we see forms. We see phenomena, and the mind starts giving them names. And the process of giving them names eases the fear, because now we know, oh, that's a tree, that's a person. I know what things are, 
now. And that, that movement to know what things are is the way that we continue to deepen the veil to the reality of what we truly are. Because the more layers of naming and belief, the more solid the sense of the one that is doing the naming, the sense of me. We don't notice that these are all just thoughts. We are scurrying to feel better. We have this deep sense of lack. So if something in our environment is not right and and we don't know what it is, we come up with a name for it. And if something in our environment <coughs> doesn't make any sense at all, we are anxious, we are upset, and we will do anything to figure out what that is. And that is a curious phenomenon. It's like this. You see this up here, this little red ball? There. Oh. I don't know how it got up there. Now the mind... This is kind of a bad example. But nevertheless, this is the point. You see this little ball, if you take it and you go like that, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. We don't know what to do with that. Now, this is a little trick, of course. We've seen in the how they do their tricks. But if something in your world seems to be a real anomaly, then it's not funny. We're concerned. If, for example, we get up in the morning and the sun is rising in the west, there would be a, a, a surge of adrenaline. <laughs> if we saw birds, suddenly we're all flying backwards. <laughs> there would be something going on. It would be, it would be fear. I mean, we would go, oh, think about it. It would be, oh my God, something crazy. What's happening? Right? So, well, this is the way this works. Originally, there's just this formless awareness. But once we are identified with a self, suddenly we have, to, we have to come up with reasons for all this stuff that is dualistic, that is apart from us. We have to come up with explanation, concept. And so we do. And we do it madly at first. So once we get it straight, then we're good. Then we can feel sort of comfortable. But this sense of self is very, very vulnerable. Anything can upset it. For a moment, ask yourself, how do you feel right now? The mind comes in to tell you. But if you just stop, and you don't feel anything, and you're not familiar with meditation practice, and the mind stops, there is a surge of fear. It is subtle, but it is there. And that surge of fear tells you that you exist. And that's good. You begin to like it. You like your suffering because your suffering defines you. 
This is the story of I. It defines us. Our fear, our anxiety, is the definition of the story of I. But within delusion, the self is veiled from this love, this innate, primordial love. It's veiled from it. It doesn't see it. The true consciousness, which we are, we have become deluded. The consciousness is not deluded. Consciousness loves all this. But we have become an an imagination that is self-referential, identifying ourselves as that. And so we can't experience that love within our realm of experience, within our story. And so when we experience fear, that fear actually is love, but we don't experience it that way. It is fear that we will lose something that we love. You see, it's it's hidden. Everything Everything is moved back. Sadness arises because we have lost something that we love. It's love. We, love, we lust after what we love, but it's, it's partial. It's objective. And we reject anything that does not bring us happiness. Nothing brings us happiness. Ultimately, we struggle, and we continue striving for happiness. We can't get it. We'll get it for little bits. We're sure we'll feel good. We love our suffering. But sometimes the depths of that suffering become too great. And then we start longing for the truth. We start longing to come home. That suffering then becomes that which draws us home. Because when we suffer, we're looking for what is this? Why am I suffering? What? What is it? Why? I have done the same thing a thousand times and I knew each time I was going to get happy from it, but I never did. Why am I suffering? Well, because I'm continuing to do the same thing over and over and over. So we bring attention to it. It's an organic process. We didn't bring attention to it until we truly began to suffer deeply. But by bringing attention to it, we see, oh, I don't, I need to stop doing that. It's a very simple thing. It has within it the seeds of compassion, divine compassion, right there. Attention is a divine manifestation. Attention is love. And when we bring attention to bear on our suffering, we begin to see into the nature of what we are, more and more. At first, no, because we got stories going on. We're identified with the one that's looking. But as we deepen our practice, we truly begin to see. And now here's a quote that's Anandamoya, my Hindu saint. Happiness that depends on anything or anyone turns into sorrow when that particular thing or person is out of reach. Everything in this world is transitory. So also, worldly happiness. 
It comes, and the next moment, it is gone. If permanent, abiding happiness is to be found, that which is eternal will have to be realized. That which is eternal is this eternal now. This. The more we see into the nature of experience, the less relevant our attachments become. It is that divine manifestation, that divine seeing. It is said that all mystical teachings are presented out of love, and this is true. They are all manifestations of love. I mean, for example, in Christianity, love thy neighbor, that's compassionate. Not just for your neighbor. It's compassionate for you. Because the more you exercise love in your life in this way, the more you start breaking open that closed heart. And in that process, you start recognizing what is really true and real in this world. I mean, if we look around in our deluded state, we don't see the world. We see our thoughts. But if we stop spinning, if we start seeing into the nature of reality, we start realizing the, the awesome nature of this moment. I'm a blade of grass. It doesn't matter. It's all magic. It's not that cheap magic trick stuff. It's the real magic. The real magic. In Mayayana Buddhism, they have the Bodhisattva vow. There are many, many versions of that. But basically, it's you vow to attain enlightenment in order to free all beings. One way or another, that's your, that's your whole purpose. So it's not about me. It's about freeing beings. And if you're doing it in a sneaky way, like, I really want it for me, but I'm doing it for those sentient beings. That's not the vow. The vow is to truly make this real. I am doing these practices for beings, to free them from suffering. And what you'll discover is all that resistance to practice that you've been going through, it drops away. Because it's love. Love of others has great power. If you want to free other beings, and that's why you're practicing, you can come up with a, a regimen for practicing regularly. If you truly take it to heart. Zen Master Dogen tells us, all Buddha's compassion and sympathy for sentient beings are neither for their own sake nor for others. It is just the nature of Buddha Dharma. It's not about doing something for others, ultimately. But within this world of suffering, we can recognize others suffer just as we suffer. And so, even though they're all imaginary, that doesn't matter. We are concerned about them. We, are, we know suffering from our own experience. And so even though we recognize we are imaginary creatures, 
these beings do not. And so the, the, the teachings then become a lifeline for other beings. And so it's an honor then and a, and a, and a blessing to bring those teachings to others. <laughs> okay, so, so suffering is basically we're, we're resisting what is. And when we start to see into the nature of things, we're no longer doing that. And the suffering does diminish. Whenever we push away anger or sadness or fear, it only grows. It becomes our identity. It's a strange thing. But the more we feel sorrow, and the more we push that sorrow away, I don't want to feel that anymore. We can't see it anymore. It's hidden. It's some something in our experience, but we don't know what it is. It's harder to see. And that is why when you feel sadness or anger or any of these emotions, it's so valuable just to be with them in the moment of their arising and to allow them to be. And we see they are transient, passing phenomena. They have no hold on you. But if you identify with them, through rejecting them, they will always be on you. They will always be your struggle. And this is why practice and paying attention is so important. Atmananda was a a Hindu sage in the 50s. And after his awakening, he had this to say. He said, I am the inmost principle, which is sat, chit, ananda. I am the light of consciousness in all thoughts and perception, the light of love in all feeling. The world which rises in and grows by thought is also thought itself. Thought is nothing but consciousness, and consciousness is my being. Therefore, the whole world is consciousness, which is myself. I have no mindness, attachment, or egoism. I am eternal and self-luminous. I am the abode of love. Oh, any questions or comments? <laughs> yeah, Valley. I like what you said. Attention is love because when I was meditating, I thought I was coughing, so I was suffering, and so I, you know, really attended to that, and I stopped that little feeling stopped. So I thought, well, that's probably what you mean when you say attention is love. You say, concentrate on somebody, but at the same time, people might say, well, I mean, I might say, if I attend to something too much, maybe I'm pushing it away, but it 
depends on the kind of attention, I suppose. And this is a very, very important point, because if we are identified with the one that is paying attention, then we're not really paying attention. We are, we are captivated in the storyline. So in, in spiritual teaching, we often talk about cultivating this witness um, consciousness, this awareness, this, this, that is, that is, it has no agenda. It is just pure knowing. So in a sense, it's, it's, it's the pure awareness. You're bringing the pure awareness to bear. And it's subjective in that sense. And it's, it's, not, it's not about what I want. Like, I see something I don't like, and then that, that attention goes, oh, I don't like that, I'm moving on. No, it remains aware. So this is witnessing, being the witnessing of experience as a practice. It's very useful to do that. But to be very, very aware, if you, if you are identified with the witness, and this can happen, you know, you can be going along, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a really good job being really aware. But if you really get quiet, you can notice a sense of irritation arising in the process of being aware. Now that doesn't mean there's really a problem. Because in the noticing of that irritation and allowing it to be there, you are now the witnessing awareness. Because that's really that's what defines it. It's not interested in, in any agenda. It has no agenda. And so just noticing I I don't like looking at this. Why you notice that? That expectation or that wanting something different. Bringing attention and noticing that. Simple, in a sense. But sometimes not easy. It takes a little practice. Yes, Bart. May I ask what you... What would your space, what would your being do if you saw birds flying backwards or the sun come up in the west. <laughs> I don't think it would really have much effect. I think it would be fine. So you would just, would it be, would it not even be exciting? Well, I would be, oh, it would be interesting. I'd be going, Robin, look, they're all flying backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it was Shandru Suzuki said something like, um, don't remember his words exactly, but something to the effect that if the sun rises, you know, in the West, we're not perturbed. Meaning himself. Yeah. Not perturbed. Because what is it? It's this it's everything that is arising. Everything that is arising is arising in this moment. And it is what it is. It isn't, you know, our lawfulness of things. You know, we have so many ways of seeing things very lawfully. They are all approximations. These are correlations that the mind has put together. They're precise and predictable, but they are not the truth. They are just, they are correlations of the mind. The reality is beyond all that, and we start to see it when we look into our experience closely. We realize these thoughts that we have, they can't touch this. Reality is so far beyond anything the mind can conceptualize. Yeah, and that kind of... Because when you said about the birds flying backwards and the sun coming up in the west, what came up for me is all of this... Now, I'm just going to be exposing maybe 
I don't think it's apathy. I don't think it's disinterest, and I don't think it's ignorance. I don't know what it is. But this, all this business about the whole world is going to tip us over when it comes to, I think it's August 24th, and we have, I mean, the whole world is rushing to be here to see the eclipse in different places in the wow. Northwest. And it always seems to me, every time I hear about this, and someone said I could even be setting up at a market, a little market that doesn't do very well over the coast. But listen, you get to camp free there and you get to be in the middle of all that. That sounds like my worst nightmare, first of all. And second of all, because of all the people, but second of all, it seems to me that it's not nearly as exciting as some of the things I witnessed moment to moment to moment. So this is the thing. See, this whole thing that you're describing is just thought. All of it. It's, it's, but this is the way the mind works. And it's, see, it's beautiful. And what you said about, well, this is just going to make me look dumb or something. doesn't matter. You see, those are just thoughts, too. It's a beautiful display. Everything is arriving and showing itself. And so you have the story. The thing about the story for you, just notice it's a story. You don't have to get worried, you know. I mean, it may be a legitimate story in the in the world of form, in the conventional sense, right. and you need to take precautions if it's something legitimate, you know. Right. But to get worried about it and to take it to be something that it isn't does not help you. Or even the oh, I just realized, or even this problem that I'm working on of being around crowds. Well, so that, yeah, that's what my thought. That's my thought is that oh my God, there's only a million people there, and that's my worst. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Anybody else have any questions or comments? We should probably call it off here soon. But anybody? One more? I, did I did I put you guys to sleep today? No. Oh, just just check. Till we meet again. Peace to you all.